2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is the Men of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations, go to puritanaudiobooks.com. The following reading is taken from the beginning of Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. The Pastor's College The Pastor's College began on a very small scale in the year 1856. Since that date, it is educated and sent forth into the ministry not less than 350 men, of whom after deductions by death and other causes, about 300 remain in the Baptist denomination, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In addition to this, a far larger number of men receive gratuitous education in the evening, training them to be city missionaries, suppliers of religious books, or useful private Christians. The institution receives no man in order to make him a preacher, but was established to help further the education of brethren who have been preaching, with some measure of success for two years at the least. Many men of earnest spirit and established Christian character are hindered in their efforts to do good by the meagerness of their knowledge. Conscious of their own defects, they endeavor to improve themselves. But in the absence of a guide, their need of books and their lack of time prevent their progress. These are the men whom the pastor's college welcomes. Men in whom piety, zeal, and the indwelling spirit are to be found need not fear refusal at our doors on account of poverty. If they possess those gifts of utterance, which are essential to the preacher, the college aims at training preachers rather than scholars, to develop the faculty of ready speech, to help them understand the word of God and to foster the spirit of consecration, courage, and confidence in God. These objects are so important that we put all other manners into a secondary position. If a student should learn a thousand things and yet fail to preach the gospel acceptably, his college course will have missed its true design. Surely the pursuit of literary prizes and the ambition for classical honors to occupy his mind is to divert his attention from his life work. They are perilous rather than beneficial. To be wise in winning souls is a wisdom ministers should possess. In the pastor's college, definite doctrines are held and taught. We hold by the doctrines of grace and the old orthodox faith and have no sympathy with the countless theological novelties of the present day, which are novelties only in outward form. In substance, they are repetitions of errors exploded long ago. Our standing in doctrinal manners is well known, and we make no profession of carte blanche charity. Yet we find no failure in the number of earnest spirits who rally to our standard, believing that in truth alone can true freedom be found. The support of the college is derived from the free will offerings of the Lord's people. We have no role of subscribers, although many friends send us aid at regular intervals. Our confidence is that God will supply all our needs, and he has always done so heretofore.
The president of the college has never derived a farthing from the work for himself in any shape, but on the contrary delights to give to the work all that he can, both of money and free service. Therefore, he confidently appeals to others to assist him in maintaining the institution. No work can possibly bestow a greater benefit upon mankind than the training of ministers whom God has chosen. For around them spring up churches, schools, and all the agencies of religion and philanthropy. As we are commanded to pray for laborers and the Lord's harvest, so are we bound to prove the honesty of our prayers by our actions. In reply to many requests from those ministers who in their student days listen to my lectures, I submit a selection to the press. This, however, I cannot do without an apology, for these addresses were not originally prepared for the public eye and are scarcely presentable for criticism. My college lectures are colloquial, familiar, full of anecdote, and often humorous. They are purposely made so to suit the occasion. At the end of the week, I meet the students and find them weary with sterner studies, and I judge it best to be as lively and interesting in my lectures as I can be. They have had their fill of classics, mathematics, and divinity, and are only in a condition to receive something which will attract and secure their attention and fire their hearts. Our tutor, Mr. Rogers, compares my Friday work to the sharpening of the pen, the fashioning of the head, the straightening, the laying on of the metal, and the polishing of Ben, done during the week. The press concludes with an effort to give point and sharpness. To succeed in this, the lecturer must not be dull himself nor demand any great effort from his audience. I am as much at home with my young brethren as in the bosom of my own family. Therefore, I speak without restraint. Generous minds will take this into account in reading these lectures, and I shall hope that all who favor me with their criticisms will be of that noble order. Possibly cutting remarks may be made upon my frequent references to myself, my own methods of procedure, and my personal reminiscences. These also were intentional. I have purposely given an almost autobiographical tinge to the whole because of my own experience such as it is, is the most original contribution I can offer my own students, which is as weighty as any other within my reach. It would have been impossible for me to quote the experiences of other men if they had not been bold enough to record them, and I make an honest attempt to acknowledge my debt to my greater predecessors by writing down my own experiences. Whether this arises from egotism or not, each reader shall decide according to the sweetness or acidity of his own disposition. A father is excused when he tells his sons his own life story and finds it the readiest way to enforce his maxim. The old soldier is forgiven when he shoulders his crutch and shows how fields were won. I beg that the license which tolerates these may on this occasion be extended to me. It would have saved me much labor had I reserved these lectures for re-delivery to new companies of freshmen, and I am conscious of no motive in printing them but that of desiring to keep my counsels alive in the memories of those who heard them years ago, 
and impressing them upon others who dwell beyond the precincts of the classroom. The age has become intensely practical and needs a ministry, not only orthodox and spiritual, but also natural in utterance and practically shrewd. Officialism is sick unto death. Life is a true heir to success and is coming to its heritage. Mannerisms, pomposities and proprieties, once so potent in the religious world, are becoming as obsolete in the reverence of men as those gods of high Olympus, for whom in past ages poets tuned their lyres and sculptures quickened marble into beauty. Truth and life must conquer, and their victory is nearest when they cease to be encumbered with the grave clothes of conventionalism and pretense. It is delicious to put one's foot through the lath and plaster of old affectations in order to make room for the granite walls of reality. This has been a main design with me, and may God send success to the effort. The solemn work with which a Christian ministry concerns itself demands a man's all, and that all should be at its best. To engage in it half-heartedly is an insult to God and man. Slumber must forsake our eyelids sooner than men shall be allowed to perish. Yet we are all prone to sleep as do others, and students among the rest are apt to act a part of the foolish virgins. Therefore I have sought to speak out my whole soul in the hope that I might not create a foster dullness in others. May he in whose hands are the churches and their pastors bless these words to my younger brethren in the ministry, and if so I shall count it more than a full reward and shall gratefully praise the Lord. Should this publication succeed, I hope very soon to issue in similar form a work upon commentating, containing a full catalog of commentaries and a second set of lectures. I shall be obliged by any assistance rendered to the sale, for the price is not remunerable, and persons interested in our subjects are not numerous enough to secure a very large circulation. Hence, it is only by the kind aid of all appreciating friends that I shall be able to publish the rest of the contemplated series. Lecture 1. The Minister Take heed unto yourself and to the doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16 Every workman knows the necessity of keeping his tools in a good state of repair. For if the iron be blunt, and he do not wet the edge, then must he put forth more strength. If the workman loses the edge on his axe, he knows there will be a greater pull upon his energies or his work will be badly done. Michelangelo, the best in the fine arts, understood so well the importance of his tools that he always made his own brushes with his own hands. And in this he gives us an illustration of the God of grace, who with special care fashions for himself all true ministers. Like Quentin Matsis in the story of the Antwerp School, the Lord is able to work with the faultiest kind of instrumentality as he does when he occasionally makes very foolish preaching to be useful in conversion. He can even work without agents as he does when he saves men without a preacher at all, applying his word directly by his Holy Spirit. But we cannot regard God's absolute sovereign acts as a rule for our action. He may in his own sovereignty do as he pleases, but we must act as his clearer dispensations instruct us. One of the clearer facts is that the Lord usually adapts means to ends. 
from which the plain lesson is that we are likely to accomplish most when we are in the best spiritual condition. In other words, we shall usually do our Lord's work best when our gifts and graces are in good order, and we shall do our worst when they are most out of order. This is a practical truth for our guidance when the Lord makes exceptions. They do but prove the rule. We are, in a certain sense, our own tools and therefore must keep ourselves in order. If I want to preach the gospel, I can only use my own voice, and so I must train my vocal powers. I can only think with my own brains and feel with my own heart. Therefore, I must educate my intellectual and emotional faculties. I can only weep and agonize for souls in my own renewed nature. Therefore, I must watchfully maintain the tenderness which was in Christ Jesus. It will be in vain for me to stock my library or organize societies or project schemes if I neglect the culture of myself. For books and agencies and systems are only remotely the instruments of my holy calling. My own spirit, soul, and body are my nearest machinery for sacred service. My spiritual faculties and my inner life are my battle axe and weapons of war. Robert Murray McChain, writing to a ministerial friend who traveled with the goal of perfecting himself in the German tongue, used language identical with our own. I know you will apply hard to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel to him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. For the herald of the gospel to be spiritually out of order in his own proper person is, both to himself and to his work, a most serious calamity. And yet, my brethren, how easily is such an evil produced, and with what watchfulness must it be guarded against? Traveling one day by express from Perth to Edinburgh, we suddenly came to a dead stop because a very small screw in one of the engines, every railway locomotive consisting virtually of two engines, had been broken. When we started again, we were obliged to crawl along with one piston rod at work instead of two. Only one small screw was gone. If that screw had been right, the train would have rushed along its iron road. But the absence of that insignificant piece of iron disarranged the whole. Similarly, a train is said to have been stopped on one of the United States railways by flies in the grease box of the carriage wheels. The analogy is perfect. A man fitted to be useful in all other respects may, by some small defect, be exceedingly hindered or even rendered utterly useless. Such a result is all the more grievous because it is associated with the gospel, which is in the highest sense adapted to produce the grandest results. It is a terrible thing when the healing balm loses its efficacy through the blunderer who administers it. You all know the injurious effect frequently produced upon water flowing through lead pipes. 
Even so, the gospel itself, when flowing through men who are spiritually unhealthy, may be debased until it grows harmful to its hearers. We should fear the Calvinistic doctrine that becomes a most evil teaching when it is set forth by men of ungodly lives and exhibited as if it were a cloak for licentiousness. Arminianism, on the other hand, with its wide sweep of the offer of mercy, may do most serious damage to the souls of men if the careless tone of the preacher leads his hearers to believe they can repent whenever they please. And therefore, no urgency surrounds the gospel message. Moreover, when a preacher is pouring grace, any lasting good which may be the result of his ministry will usually be feeble and utterly out of proportion with what might have been expected. Much sowing will be followed by little reaping. Thus, the interest upon the talents will be insignificantly small. In two or three of the battles, which were lost in the American Civil War, the result is said to have been due to bad gunpowder, supplied by certain shoddy contractors to the army. Consequently, the due effect of a bombardment was not produced. So it may be with us. We may miss our mark, lose our end and aim, and waste our time by not possessing the true vital force within ourselves or not possessing it in such a degree that God could consistently bless us. Beware of being shoddy preachers. It should be one of our first cares that we ourselves be saved men. That a teacher of the gospel should first be a partaker of it is a simple truth. But at the same time, it is a rule of the uttermost importance. We are not among those who accept the apostolic succession of young men simply because they assume it. If their college experience has been more vivacious and spiritual, and if their honors have been connected more with athletic exercises than with labors for Christ, then we demand evidence of another kind than what they are able to present to us. No amount of fees paid to learn doctors and no amount of classics received in return appear to us to be evidences of a call from above. True and genuine devotion to God is necessary as the first indispensable qualification. Whatever call a man may pretend to have, if he has not been called to holiness, he certainly has not been called to the ministry. First, be trimmed thyself, and then adorn thy brother, says the rabbi. The hand, says Gregory, that means to make another clean, must not itself be dirty. If your salt be unsavory, how can you season others? Conversion is essential in a minister. You who are candidates to our pulpits, you must be born again. The possession of this first qualification is not a thing to be taken for granted by any man, for there is a very great possibility of our being mistaken as to whether we are converted or not. Believe me, it is no child's play to make your calling an election sure. The world is full of counterfeits and swarms with panderers to carnal self-conceit, who gather around ministers as vultures around a carcass. Our own hearts are deceitful, so that truth lies not on the surface, but must be drawn up from the deepest well. We must search ourselves very anxiously and very thoroughly, lest by any means, after having preached to others, we ourselves should be cast away. How horrible to be a preacher of the gospel and yet to be unconverted. 
Let each man here whisper to his inmost soul, what a dreadful thing it will be for me if I should be ignorant of the power of the truth, which I am preparing to proclaim. Unconverted ministry involves the most unnatural relationships. A graceless pastor is like a blind man elected to a profession of optics, philosophizing upon light and vision, distinguishing to others the nice shades and delicate blending of the prismatic colors, while he himself is in absolute darkness. He is a dumb man elevated to the chair of music, a deaf man fluent upon symphonies and harmonies. He is a mole, professing to educate eaglets, a marine, gastropod, mollusk, elected to preside over angels. To such a relationship one might apply the most absurd and grotesque metaphors, except that the subject is too solemn. It is a dreadful position for a man to stand in, for he has undertaken a work for which he is totally, holy, and altogether unqualified, but not from the responsibilities of which his unfitness will not screen him, but because he willfully invites them. Whatever his natural gifts, whatever his mental powers may be, he is utterly out of court for spiritual work if he has no spiritual life, and it is his duty to cease a ministerial office until he has received his first and simplest of qualifications for it. Unconverted ministry must be equally dreadful in another respect. If the man has no commission, what a very unhappy position for him to occupy. What can he see in the experience of his people to give him comfort? How must he feel when he hears the cries of penitence or listens to their anxious doubts and solemn fears? He must be astonished to think that his word should be held to that end. The word of an unconverted man may be blessed to lead to the conversion of souls, since the Lord, while he disowns a man, will still honor his own truth. How perplexed such a minister must be when he is consulted concerning the difficulties of mature Christians in a pathway of experience in which his own regenerate hearers are led. He must feel himself quite at a loss. How can he listen to their deathbed joys or join in their rapturous fellowships around the table of their Lord? In many instances of young men put to a trade which they cannot endure, they have run away to see sooner than follow an irksome business. But where shall that man flee who is apprenticed for life to this holy calling, and yet is a total stranger to the power of godliness? How can he daily bid men come to Christ while he himself is a stranger to his dying love? Oh, sirs, surely this must be perpetual slavery. Such a man must hate the sight of a pulpit as much as a galley slave hates the oar. And how useless such a man must be when he has to guide travelers along a road which he has never trodden or to navigate a vessel along a coast of which he knows none of the landmarks. He is called to instruct others, being himself a fool. What can he be but a cloud without rain or a flower without blossoms? He's like a traveler in the wilderness, thirsty and ready to die beneath the broiling sun when suddenly it comes to the long-desired well and horror of horrors, finds it without a drop of water. 
So it is when souls thirsting after God come to a graceless ministry, they are ready to perish because the water of life is not to be found. Better to abolish pulpits than fill them with men who have no experiential knowledge of what they teach. Alas, the unregenerate pastor also becomes terribly mischievous for of all the causes which create infidelity. And godly ministers must be ranked among the first. I read the other day that no phase of evil presented so marvelous a power for destruction as the unconverted minister of a parish with an expensive organ, a choir of ungodly singers, and an aristocratic congregation. It was the opinion of the writer that there could be no greater instrument for damnation to hell than that. People go to their place of worship, sit down comfortably, and think they must be Christians, when all along their religion consists only in listening to an orator and having their ears tickled with music and perhaps their eyes amused with graceful action and fashionable manners. The entire affair is no better than what they hear and see at the opera. Not even so good, perhaps, in point of aesthetic beauty, and not an atom more spiritual. Thousands are congratulating themselves and even blessing God that they are devout worshipers, when at the same time they are living in an unregenerate, Christless state, having a form of godliness but denying the power of it. One who presides over a system which aims at nothing higher than formalism is far more a servant of the devil than a minister of God. A formal preacher can be mischievous, even while he preserves his outward equilibrium. Without the preserving balance of godliness, sooner or later he is almost sure to fall in his moral character, and in what a position he will then be in. How God is blasphemed and the gospel abused. Terrible is it to consider what a death must await such a man, and what must be his after-condition. The prophetic pictures of King of Babylon going down to hell with all the kings and princes whom he had destroyed, and whose capitals he had laid waste, rising up from their places in pandemonium, and saluting the fallen tyrant with a cutting sarcasm, Art thou become like unto us? Can you imagine a man who has been a minister, but who has lived without Christ in his heart, going down to hell amongst all the imprisoned spirits, who used to listen to him, and amongst all the ungodly of his parish, rising up and saying to him in bitter tones, Art thou also become as we are? Physician, did you not heal yourself? Are you claimed to be a shining light cast down into the darkness forever? Oh, if one must be lost, let it not be in this fashion." To be lost under the shadow of a pulpit is dreadful, but how much more so to perish from the pulpit itself. There is an awful passage in John Bunyan's treatise entitled A Few Sighs from Hell, which often rings fully in my ears. Quote, how many souls have blind priests been the means of destroying by their ignorance, preaching that was no better for their souls than rat's poison to the body? Many of them, it is to be feared, have whole towns to answer for. Ah, friend, I tell thee, thou hast taken in hand to preach to the people, 
It may be thou hast taken in hand, thou canst not tell what. Will it not grieve thee to see thy whole parish come bellowing after thee into hell, crying out, This we have to thank thee for. Thou wast afraid to tell us of our sins, lest we should not put meat fast enough into thy mouth. O cursed wretch, who was not content, blind guide as thou was, to fall into the ditch thyself, but has also led us thither with thee." Richard Baxter, in his book, The Reformed Pastor, amid many other solemn manners, writes as follows, quote, Take heed to yourselves, lest you should be void of that saving grace of God which you offered to others, and be strangers to the effectual working of that gospel which you preach, unless while you proclaim the necessity of a Savior to the world, your heart should neglect him, and you should miss of an interest in him and his saving benefits. Take heed to yourselves, lest you perish while you call upon others to take heed of perishing, unless you famish yourselves while you prepare their food. Though there be a promise of shining as stars as those that turn many to righteousness, Daniel 12, verse 3, this is but on supposition that they be first turned to it themselves. Their own sincerity in the faith is the condition of their glory simply considered though their great ministerial labors may be a condition of the promise of their greater glory. Many men have warned others that they come not to that place of torment, which yet they hasted to themselves. Many a preacher is now in hell that has an hundred times called upon his ears to use the utmost care and diligence to escape it. Can any reasonable man imagine that God should save men for offering salvation to others? Well, they refused it themselves, and for telling others those truths which they themselves neglected and abused. Many a tailor goes in rags that makes costly clothes for others, and many a cook scarce licks his fingers when he is dressed for others the most costly dishes. Believe it, brethren, God never saved any man for being a preacher, nor because he was an able preacher but because he was a justified, sanctified man, and consequently faithful in his master's work. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves first, that you be that which you persuade others to be, and believe that which you persuade them daily to believe, and have heartily entertained that Christ and Spirit which you offer to others. He that bade you love your neighbors as yourselves did imply that you should love yourselves and not hate and destroy both yourselves and them. Quote. My brethren, let these weighty sentences have due effect upon you. Surely there can be no need to add more, but let me pray you to examine yourselves and so make good use of what has been addressed to you.